This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In today's episode, I sit down with Chris Masterjohn. Chris has his PhD in nutritional sciences with a concentration in biochemical and molecular nutrition from the University of Connecticut. He writes a blog called The Daily Lipid and is a frequent contributor on the Weston A. Price Foundation's blog. Chris is one of the foremost experts on the topic of cholesterol and its relationship to heart disease. And in this episode, we discuss the history of the cholesterol-heart disease connection, misconceptions about diet versus the lipid hypothesis, some of the dietary pitfalls experienced by vegans and vegetarians and how you can overcome them by eating the right types of quality meats, methylation and its role in the production of neurotransmitters, cellular detoxification, and what foods help facilitate pro-methylation pathways, light and food hacks for dental health optimization, Chris's daily diet, Chris's favorite hacks for keeping organ meats, which are not necessarily known for their palatability, as a part of your weekly nutrition program, Chris's favorite supplements, the first 90 minutes of his day, and much, much more. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Chris Masterjohn. Hey everyone, I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best-selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. All right, we're live. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. <laughs> Great to be here. If you could start out, share with us your story about how you got involved in uh, the health space. Sure. I mean, probably going, you know, even when I was a little kid, I was interested in health. I kind of picked that up from my mom who had gone through a lot of health problems, discovered alternative medicine and things like that that really helped her along her way. But when I was a teenager, I really kind of motivated by health really took a road that didn't quite work out very well for me. And that was after reading John Robbins' Diet for a New America, which was kind of the, the vegan book at the time, since been displaced by a lot of newer ones, like China study. Uh, but I was convinced that to do my body good, to do the world good and on the ecological front, and to do right by the animals, the best thing I could do is become a vegan. So I became a vegetarian at first, and... Eventually, I became a vegan. I was about veg I was a vegetarian for about two years and a vegan for about a year of that. And I actually developed a lot of health problems, a lot of tooth decay, uh, a lot of digestive troubles, anxiety problems, and so on and so forth. And I had the good luck when I was an undergraduate studying history, of all things, which is quite different from my current track. I My boss and now friend at the time gave me a pamphlet about raw milk that mentioned the work of Weston Price. And this was very interesting to me because Weston Price, according to this pamphlet, had discovered a lot of people who were free from tooth decay. And I had just found out from my dentist that I had over a dozen cavities and needed two root canals. So I said to myself, tooth decay, freedom from tooth decay, I want in on that. And uh, first thing I did was read Nutrition and Physical Degeneration and that was Weston Price's magnum opus, written at first in 1939 and the second edition in 1945. And Price uh, was a dentist, but he was a, really a dental researcher. He was the first research director of what became the American Dental Association. And after doing 25 years of laboratory and clinical research to try to understand the causes and consequences of tooth decay, he went out traveling the world looking for uh, non-modernized, non-industrialized populations who were free of tooth decay. And it was the perfect time to do the research at that time because many of these groups were just on the cusp of modernizing. So he was often able to find people in vastly different parts of the globe uh, who were isolated from modern society, but take the same people with similar genetics, similar cultural heritage, who may have lived um, just a few miles from one another, where one town had a port that opened up and was importing refined foods like white sugar, white flour, etc. 
and the other and the other town was still isolated and still living their traditional lifestyle and eating their traditional diet. And what he documented was that consistently across all latitudes, across all continents, um, in many different contexts, can, the consistent effects of the nutritional transition from uh, traditional diets to modern diets, we call the, uh, the displacing foods of modern commerce, white flour, white sugar, white rice, syrups, and canned goods, uh, consistently led not only to tooth decay, but to dental deformities, to increased risk of tuberculosis, and with varying degrees of evidence, he tied this transition to heart disease, cancer, uh, and, a, and a variety of other diseases as well. I think most remarkable to me about this was not that white flour and white sugar were contributing to disease, but rather Price's view on the traditional diets. So Price emphasized that all these different groups were not only consuming, but really emphasizing because they understood the nutritional importance of animal foods, especially uh, the animal life of the sea, particularly uh, fish and shellfish. The, um, in some groups it was insects, in some groups it was egg yolks and uh, organ meats, including liver. In some groups it was dairy products. But all these groups emphasize at least one of these different types of animal products as a means of obtaining good health. And from his own more modern analysis, as a means of obtaining fat-soluble vitamins. And so I thought, wait a second, these are all the foods that I'm not eating at all. Not only that, but really the, the selection of animal foods was a lot of foods that even, you know, my friends who were omnivores weren't eating, like organ meats and so on. So I started incorporating the principles that I learned from Price's work. I started eating meat again, but didn't really go back to eating burgers. I, you know, I'm not saying I never eat burgers, but... Uh, I was really emphasizing the nutrient-dense foods, um, the organ meats, the shellfish, ways of incorporating bones uh, and skin into my diet, and so on and so forth. And not only did that put a halt to my tooth decay, but it really revolutionized my mental health, which was not in a good state at that time. And you know, I, I didn't realize the impact that it had on my mental health until a few months later, I had almost forgotten... Um, what it was like to be me three months ago. And I was working in the University of Massachusetts dining hall as an undergrad at that time. And I saw a guy lift up a stack of plates and take the one underneath. And I scratched my head. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with that guy? Why didn't he just take the one on the top? And then a few seconds went by. And then I realized that not only was I doing that all the time a few months ago, but I would often spend 20 minutes trying to pick out the right glass that was like just free of spots enough for me to drink out of. And I had gotten to the point where I totally forgot that I was doing stuff in just such a short time. And it was so foreign to me then. And that's the, that's the, I think the most incredible impact of my dietary change was how much it changed me as a human being and my ability to really, uh, you know, function at the top of my game mentally. So once you, you attribute that change in your psychological health, to the reintegration of meats and organ meats and, and those Weston price in, uh, influenced dietary changes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's, it's pretty fascinating. I've heard some story, some stories about schizophrenia and depression and bipolar disorders and some of those conditions being relieved when clients remove dairy and grains from their, from, from their diet. I have not heard the opposite where those, People are experiencing, was it OCD? Was that how you would categorize what you were dealing with? Uh, I think I had uh, a, a collection of anxiety disorders. <laughs> An amalgamy of anxiety disorders. Yeah, so, well, I think when you're removing grains and dairy, if it's a specific reaction to grains and dairy, it could be a negative reaction to some of the opioid peptides that, that, that they digest into. Uh, it could be a variety of reasons for that. Of course, you have to remember whenever people are taking things out of their diet, usually they're adding other things back in. You have to account for that. But I think in my case, uh, there could be a variety of explanations, but one of them that's interesting is the role of uh, methylation and methylation-supporting nutrients. So some of the nutrients that are most missing from a vegan diet are vitamin B12, um, Methionine intakes are a lot lower, which is an amino acid that you get from animal protein, also from plant protein, but you get in much higher amounts from animal protein. 
that supports the methylation cycle. And this methylation process, which is basically just adding a single carbon unit to a variety of molecules, is really important in the brain in regulating uh, dopamine signaling. And so one of the things that can happen if you have inadequate promethylation nutrients is that your uh, because of the dysregulation of dopamine in the brain, you wind up having not enough mental flexibility and too much mental stability. And one of the things that causes anxiety, if you imagine someone undergoing a panic attack, for example, the person has a mental image that goes through their brain. And you may have someone, you know, and I, some person that has the identical experience who's healthy. And that healthy person, the image goes into their brain and they say, ah, oh, it's not a good, good image, get rid of it. But in the person who's predisposed to uh, too much mental stability, they have a lot of difficulty getting rid of these images with negative emotional balance once they enter their brains. And so those people will be predisposed to having adverse emotional reactions to those images. But in the case of a panic attack, one of the things that's happening is um, even when you feel the negative emotional reaction, you still can't get rid of it. So you may have this... Um, this belief or idea that something terrible is about to happen uh, may enter your, your mind. And um, if you were able to get rid of it as soon as you notice it producing anxiety, then that anxiety would subside. But if you start to become anxious about it and that image or that idea stays in your mind, then you create a positive feedback loop where the anxiety continually elevates and elevates to the point where the person goes over the threshold into a panic attack. And if you look epidemiologically, uh, vegetarians and vegans have much higher incidence of mental disorders, including anxiety disorders, as omnivores do. And, you know, you can't necessarily say that that's a cause and effect relationship, but it, you can certainly say that it wasn't unique to me uh, seeing the association there. You actually see that association in the general population. And I think it's reasonable to say that, you know, a, a lot of Part of the reason for that increased risk in mental disorders is inadequate uh, nutrients and, and some of the nutrients that are important in supporting mental health. What percentage of anxiety disorders do you attribute to methylation problems, MTHFR, SNPs, and, and things like that? Uh, I am not in a good position to make a quantitative estimate. What I do know, and part of the reason for that is usually when I've seen research on it, that research is looking at, okay, if you have this genetic polymorphism, what, you know, how, how much uh, increased risk are you? Um, I haven't seen papers, or I'm not saying they're not there, but I haven't personally seen papers that attempt to quantify it the other way, which is, okay, we have all these people with anxiety disorders, what proportion of them is resulting from polymorphisms or nutrients in the methylation pathway? And I think... It would be really hard to do that because everything in the body is multifactorial. So it may be that methylation is contributing in varying degrees to everyone who has you know, a certain disorder. But maybe it plays a minor role in some people or it plays a major role in others. And in some cases, that may be a genetic polymorphism in the pathway. Some cases, it may be a nutrient in the pathway. In some cases, it may be, um, you know, the predominant contributor may be trauma and, and personal experience, but even when that's the case, it's still interacting with all of the biochemistry of the brain. So I think it would be really hard to make that quantitative estimate. I'm not in the position to do so. But what I would say instead is that because everything's multifactorial, you should never use the illustration that one thing is clearly important to rule out the importance of other things. So we know that these biochemical pathways regulate brain activity. We know that what the brain is doing in, with those biochemical pathways is responding to all the stimuli that we're sending it. And we know that nutrients and genetics play into those pathways. So it really doesn't make any sense to rule out any aspect of that. Certainly, some are more important than others in some people versus other people. But when it comes down to it, you're going to get the most bang out of your buck in fixing the weakest link in your chain. And if, you're, if you understand the way nutrition supports these pathways and you're eating as perfect a diet as you can, uh, but meanwhile you're not 
talking to anyone about the traumas that you've experienced that are eating away at your subconscious somewhere in you or you're not um, dealing with the issues that are currently in your life, then um, you're not going to get anything out of trying to further optimize your nutrition. Uh, by contrast, if, you're, if you have panic disorder and you're not paying any attention to nutrition, you're going to a cognitive therapist and it's kind of helping, but it's not really overcoming it, it would be very foolish to ignore the role of nutrition because certainly within the general population of what people are eating, there's, there's probably most people could take advantage of uh, a better understanding of how nutrition affects those pathways, including, I would say, most people who are treating people could probably have a better appreciation of that because we're so fragmented that, you know, I have a PhD in nutrition and uh, I know about nutrition, but then the next person has a PhD in psychotherapy and or some related discipline and does know about nutrition and we don't talk to each other. So, um, so that in itself is a problem. I think if uh, everyone in our own disciplines kind of got together a little more to exchange our expertise, probably a lot of people would benefit because it's always going to be that multifactorial approach that's going to really pay off. Absolutely. I think, I think the fragmentation in the end, it only hurts the, the clients. What, what other changes did you experience besides some of the positive mental benefits when you, when you went from vegan vegetarianism to um, reintegrating some of those meats? Physically, strength-wise, energy-wise, what, what changes did you see? Uh, well, physically, the biggest things were uh, my, my enormous tendency to tooth decay stopped and my digestion improved a lot. Um, I think with the tooth decay, I was consuming a lot more of the nutrients that are needed to support uh, dental health. And again, this is another case where our disciplines don't really cooperate with one another because I don't think you know dentistry is so focused on drilling out cavities and replacing them and giving people hygienic tips on how they can prevent tooth decay. And there's very little correspondence between nutrition and dentistry in that sense. Even though Weston Price was the first research director for what became the American Dental Association, was one of the pioneers in nutritional anthropology. Uh, I don't know what happened, but um, in fact, I had a friend, I have a friend who's a dentist, and back when she was in dental school, when she was done with it, she gave me a textbook on the pathogenesis of tooth decay. And it says, in that book, it says, tooth decay is you know, totally uncontroversial, that tooth decay is all about the matter of the balance between uh, rebuilding the tooth and demineralization of the tooth. And both those things are always happening and it's only when demineralization exceeds the rate of mineralization that you actually get tooth decay. And instead of saying, well, we know that tooth mineral is made out of calcium and we know that fat-soluble vitamins regulate getting that calcium into the tooth or anything like that, what they instead go on to say is that uh, Nevertheless, despite knowing all this stuff about the pathogenesis of tooth decay, we have not eradicated it and are not likely to eradicate it in the future because no one has yet developed a vaccine for it. And so apart from the merits of vaccinating against bacteria that cause tooth decay, what's sort of the elephant in the room here is uh, teeth are made out of nutrients and it's nutrients that put those other nutrients in the teeth. So that makes nutrition very relevant to, to tooth decay. Uh, particularly the um, particularly the fat soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, and K, are important in making the proteins that get calcium into the teeth. Obvious that obviously that calcium is also important. And uh, one of the things that Weston Price noted, and he wasn't the only person who noted this. Also, Sir Edward Mellenby, who was important in the discovery of the fat soluble vitamins, both of them independently showed that you could take someone who has cavities and without doing any oral surgery to fill the cavity, you could take them off a cavity-producing diet and put them on a cavity-healing diet and their teeth would spontaneously heal. And Price and Mellenby both thought that the main factors in the diet were the minerals that get into the teeth and the fat-soluble vitamins. And Mellenby also put an emphasis on anti-nutrients as well. So, for example, oats are really high in uh, phytic acid, which inhibits calcium absorption. And Mellenby showed that 
Uh, if you had more oats in the diet, you'd worsen the tooth decay. But if you took out the oats and you add the fat-soluble vitamins, you could heal the tooth decay. And what we see in modern science is that the uh, tooth decay happens when you start eating away at the, you get through the enamel, then you start eating away at the dentin. And we actually have stem cells in the tooth that can regenerate the cells that um, lay down the dentin to, to heal the tooth. And the main factors that govern those stem cells turning into the cells that will lay down the new dentin is the fat-soluble vitamins, particularly vitamins A and D. So everything really sort of that we're learning about um, how that process works in the era of modern molecular biology is really confirming what Price and Mellonby had shown back in the 1930s, and we spent too many decades forgetting in between. You mentioned a, a, a diet that supports dental health. You refer to it as a cavity healing diet. What foods would you consider to be the most beneficial for someone that's looking to uh, heal cavities or optimize their dental health? Sure. Well, one of the important nutrients is vitamin D. As many people know, you can get vitamin D from sunshine. You can also get vitamin D from food. Uh, fish, particularly fatty fish, are great sources of vitamin D. Egg yolks are good sources of vitamin D, and if they're pastured, they have, if their chickens are raised out in the sunshine, they become a lot richer in vitamin D and even start to rival fatty fish. So if you're eating a lot of pastured egg yolks and uh, fatty fish, you can actually get a pretty significant vitamin D intake, and if you combine that with sunshine, I think that's the best thing. Of course, vitamin D supplements are always an option for someone who's uh, who you know has trouble getting enough or can't get outside or something like that. Although vitamin D isn't a full substitute for getting outside, so go outside. Then the other thing is uh, vitamin A. Vitamin A is uh, vitamin A is a little complicated. So a lot of people think of vitamin A, they think of carrots, and carrots are like all other red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables are very rich in carotenoids, which are chemicals that can be converted into retinol, which is the form of vitamin A that our bodies need. Uh, But different people have very different abilities to derive vitamin A from plant foods. So if, uh, and this is every so often a new paper is published showing new genetic polymorphisms that interfere with this ability. But just to give you an example of how big the effect can be, the earliest paper that came out in 2012 showed that for people of European descent, half of people had their ability to derive vitamin A from plant foods cut in half, and about, I think it was a quarter, it might have been a third of people had their ability to derive vitamin A from plant foods cut fourfold. And uh, they also looked at Asian populations. The Asians, the incidence of those polymorphisms was lower, but there's still a lot of, uh, uh, still a lot of people within Asian populations uh, who, just like people from European ancestry, have these polymorphisms that hurt their ability to get vitamin A from plant foods. So I think right now it's really tough to know where you are on the genetic landscape there because our knowledge is kind of in its infancy about it. It's hard to get tested, um, and we don't know all the different polymorphisms that are important yet. But if you are someone who has difficulty with that, then the best sources of vitamin A are animal foods that actually contain the retinol in a way that doesn't need any conversion. So I think... Not knowing our genetics, it's best to eat a lot of red, yellow, green, and orange vegetables, but also eat a lot of animal food sources of vitamin A. And the, by far and away, liver is king. Uh, if you eat liver once a week, you fulfill your daily requirement, as at least as determined by the RDA, um, for vitamin A. And that's just eating one serving once a week. No. I think it's a good idea to get more than the RDA for vitamin A, particularly if you have a tendency towards tooth decay. But still, you eat liver once a week, and then you pile on top of that other animal products, especially pastured egg yolks, uh, pastured butter fat, and you also include um, the colorful vegetables. And for good measure, you throw in some red, unrefined palm oil. Uh, you're really doing yourself a lot of favors. Then, um, And then finally, so vitamins A and D are making proteins that help get the calcium into the tooth. Vitamin K is important in activating those proteins. There's a few types of vitamin K. Vitamin K1 is in leafy greens. Vitamin K2 seems to be more important for this, and that's in animal fats and fermented foods. Uh, 
in terms of what people like to eat, hard cheeses and egg yolks are the best ways to get vitamin K2. Although there are some foods like goose liver and uh, natto, which is a particular type of fermented soy that are also really rich. And then finally, you got to get the calcium in the diet. And uh, if you're drinking milk, milk, uh, I prefer raw milk over pasteurized milk. If you're not drinking milk, bones, um, bone broths aren't that great a source of calcium, but edible bones are. So if you're eating the soft edible bones in canned fish, or you're chewing the knobs off of the small bones in a roast chicken, or you're finding, or you're consuming bone meal powder, you're finding some other way to get bones in the diet. It's a great source of calcium. Leafy greens are also a good source of calcium, but I think they're better as an adjunct than as a standalone source of calcium, in my opinion. So that's the uh, that's the simple view. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, what what does your daily diet look like? Well, it depends. So. Um, what I'm eating right now is pretty different from what I was eating a few months ago, which is pretty different from what I was eating before that. So I, uh, after a long period of being attached to my computer all day for 10 years, I, uh, decided to get fit again. So I joined CrossFit in August and I had lifted a lot of weights about a decade ago and I was a lot muscular than I am now. And, and well, actually now I'm a lot more muscular than I was six months ago, but, but anyway, uh, I feel like my body, once I started uh, lifting weights again, was like, oh, we know what this is like. We're going to make him eat as much food as possible. So for a few months, I was kind of uh, kind of just eating my brains out so I could pack on whatever muscle I could. And now I'm kind of, uh, now I'm kind of trying to lean out. So my diet's a little weird now because I'm weighing my food and uh, I'm trying to eat a lot of protein. So... Uh, let's see. Typically, I wake up in the morning, and my priority to well, actually, I should clarify one thing. So I don't have a lot of time, and I try to eat home cooked meals. And the only way I can do that is to cook enormous, uh, enormous amounts of things that can later be reheated in the week. And that actually works really well for leaning out for me because it makes my diet kind of monotonous, um, which kind of facilitates eating less food. But anyway, so at the beginning of the week, I'll cook a giant pot full of uh, sprouted lentils, uh, germinated brown rice, and potatoes. And I'll just, I mean the big pot, like, uh, you know, the real big one. Yeah. The ones that they don't make bigger ones than unless you're in the back of a commercial kitchen. So I, uh, so I steam that for half an hour, and then I refrigerate it, and, and uh, kind of serves as my main source of starch, where I just take a couple scoops out and uh, reheat it. And... Right now, uh, because I'm uh, eating, trying to eat um, on the lower side for calorie intake, I'm not eating many fats except the most nutrient-dense ones. So most of my fat comes from egg yolks, hard cheese, and pate. I eat pate because I feel best when I eat a lot of liver, but I don't really have a, from a time management perspective, I don't have a sustainable way to get liver on the regular except to scoop out some pate. So an example of a, of a lunch I might eat, um, and this is, this is what I do when I'm not with friends, uh, but an example of a lunch I might eat when I'm alone is uh, reverse sandwiches with some, some deli meats with some pate spread in them and some, uh, some heated uh, lentil rice potato goop. I stick that on the inside and I roll it up and eat it. Um, and I get my green leafy vegetables in with some triple washed uh, leaf of my choice that I just dump into a plate and, uh, and chow it down. So if I weren't trying to lean out, I would, um, it would probably look something, that same meal would look more like uh, I cook up the rice, potatoes, and uh, lentils, heat it up, grate a bunch of cheese into it, crumble some hamburger meat, and throw that in there and make kind of a stew. And, uh, and maybe add some butter into it or something like that. I eat a lot of eggs, but I tend toward eating raw egg yolks and throwing the whites away. And I do that mainly because, partly because it's convenient and partly because the egg yolks really pack in a lot of nutrition that's hard to get elsewhere. Uh, so egg yolks are, they're kind of like a multivitamin, but they're super high in biotin and in choline. 
And really the only other good food that really jam packs those two nutrients in like egg yolks do is liver. So, so I try to get my liver and egg yolks in, but, um, if you do the raw whites along with the yolk, is it true that that can interfere with biotin assimilation and bioavailability? That is true. And in fact, even if you cook the whites, it's not a perfect remedy for that. So on the one hand, there's tons of biotin in the egg yolk. And so that means that you're not probably not going to get a biotin deficiency from eating whole eggs, even if they're raw. On the other hand, if you're trying to get extra biotin, then the egg yolks kind of stand in the way of that. Um, cooking the egg whites does reduce the biotin antagonism, but there's residual biotin antagonism in um, in most types of cooked foods. So, like scram, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but between like 30 and 60 percent of the biotin antagonism tends to remain depending on the type of cooking method used. What are some time-saving hacks? You mentioned a very common problem and one that I've experienced as well when I try to integrate more organ meats into my diet, which is that it's just it's difficult to constantly be ordering liver and then you have to defrost it. It doesn't always taste good. You can play around with Brunschweiger and, and liverwurst and things like that. What are some of your go-to products? What, what pate do you use? What are some other things that you've found to be helpful in keeping nutrient-dense organ meats a part of your diet? For the sake of convenience right now, I'm getting the chicken liver pate that my local food co-ops sells. And to be honest, I don't remember the name, but actually my refrigerator's right here. Yeah. I got this one most recently. Oh, wow. What is that? Where did you get that from? It probably isn't the highest quality thing, but the ingredients aren't that bad. Chicken liver, duck fat, eggs, cream, milk, roasted red peppers, um, some other stuff for flavor. Uh, there's some non-fat dry milk. I'd rather not have that in my diet. But uh, at this point, I feel like the, any negative aspects to some of these um, less than ideal ingredients is minor compared to the benefit that I get with a sustainable way of getting liver into my diet. And for, and, for anyone listening that couldn't see that, it was it was moose m o u s s e space A-U-X space P-O-I-V-R-O-N-S. Yeah, and the English subtitle <laughs> is Chicken Liver Moose with Roasted Red Peppers. Chicken Liver Moose, yummy. So that's the super convenient thing. If I were trying, if I were optimizing for uh, health effect, what I would be doing is getting, and you know, part of the reason I wound up on, on this in the first place was because I, I found that the um, local farmers market to me sells grass-fed liver, but in a matter of a week or two, I I bought up all their grass-fed liver supply. <laughs> so anyway, if I were really focusing on uh, maximizing the health benefit uh, instead of balancing it with convenience, then I would get the highest quality pure grass-fed liver that I could. Uh, one that I've used in the past that I've been pretty happy with is mail ordering uh, bison liver from North Star Bison, and it always you can tell that it's fresh when they freeze it and it gets to your door still frozen. It's pretty convenient uh, ordering it, and you can you know you can freeze it for quite a while, so it's not like you have to order one at a time. And what I find if I'm doing it that way, what I find is the main problem is that. Once you thaw out liver, it doesn't really last that long in the fridge. And I don't always feel like eating liver. So one of the problems that I have is I thaw out the liver expecting I'm going to want to eat some the next day. And then I look at the liver in the fridge and I'm like, no, I don't really don't want to eat that right now. And then, and then before I know it, it's kind of developing an off flavor from being in the fridge too long. So the strategy that I've settled on for that is, let's say I ordered five individually wrapped pounds of bison liver and put them in my freezer. I'll take out one of those and thaw it in the refrigerator, not to the point where it's thawed, but just the part point where it's only as thawed as it needs to be to be able to cut a knife through it. And that's more or less still frozen, but just a little bit, but you know, kind of you take the edge off the frozenness. And then I, in science, lab science, we say, aliquot, but uh, I put this on a blog post and no one knew what I was talking about. So I aliquot the liver, 
um, meaning I, I cut it up into smaller pieces that I would expect to eat at one time, and then I individually wrap those and put it back in the freezer. And because the pieces are smaller, they file a lot more quickly, and also the risk of wasting it is much lower if you, if you were to, to, to waste it. But the likelihood that you'll waste it is also a lot smaller because it thaws out quickly. It's only what you'll eat at one time. And so I find doing that is part of its convenience, but part of it is also just freshness. You know, the fresh that helps me make it fresher. It being fresher makes me want to eat it. And if I eat it, that kind of keeps the cycle going. Um, things you can do to make it taste a little better, soak it for a few hours in something acidic. Some people soak it in milk and then cook it, but be very light with the cooking. I think that's healthier than uh, grabbing the, the pate at the local food co-op, but grabbing the pate at the local food co-op is a lot more convenient. So if you're juggling things, I think, I think the most important thing is uh, sustainability, right? So the, the exercise program that you hate is the worst exercise program. The liver that you won't eat is the worst way to eat liver. So uh, I think, you know, a lot of people also ask, like, what type of liver? Chicken liver, bison liver, lamb liver, beef liver. Find something you like. Find something that, you know, isn't so grueling that, you're, that you hesitate to do it every time and stick with that because, to be honest, the main limiting factor for most people is they don't like the taste of liver. So if you can find something that you like or that you maximally tolerate, then stick with that thing. Otherwise, it's not going to be a sustainable habit. And if you don't sustain the habit, then what is the point of eating it once? Yeah, absolutely. And when you're taking these little individually wrapped pieces of liver, are you are you like thawing them and cooking them, or is it? I'd heard. I think it was Chris Kresser talked about taking some of these and just like throwing them down like a pill. What's your approach? I've also just eaten them uh, like a raw steak. The benefit of the pill thing is it's sort of like not eating liver. The drawback to the pill thing is it's sort of like not eating very little liver. So, you know, the, the, the drawback to, and the same, similar drawback with desiccated liver, like the amount that you can get into your system is not very large. So if you're actually eating it as a portion of the meal, you're really able to really up your liver game in terms of quantity a lot better. And not everyone needs to eat a lot of liver, but I think, you know, just as not everyone develops a mouthful of tooth decay on a vegan diet, um, I kind of fall into the category where I have a high need for a lot of these nutrients. And if I can eat liver that equates to several servings a week instead of one serving every week or two, I feel like I'm a lot better off because of it. And it would be hard for me to get enough liver by eating pills like that. But... If you don't really have a really high need to get all that liver in, those, you know, eating, swallowing a whole piece of a uh, little cube of liver every day can really add up over time to maybe something like a half serving or a serving a week uh, for some people. And or if you eat a few of those cubes at a time, certainly you can get a serving a week out of that. And uh, that's a great way to get liver in for someone who really can't tolerate it. Um, I think it's you know different people. Uh, Different people do well with different things, and if that's the one habit that you can make that gets the liver in you, then that's the best liver habit that you that you can get into, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's fun to hear other people have the same challenges with liver. Um, I've tried buying the, the regular grass-fed beef liver, and it, it sits in my fridge, and I eat just about everything else first, and then it goes bad and gets funky. Um, one thing that I have found helpful is grasslandbeef.com. They have uh, Brunschweiger and Liverwurst, both from pastured animals, and they taste all right. It's not amazing. You're still going to gross out your friends, but um, it tastes a lot better than, than raw uh, pastured beef. Do you, do you take any supplements? Uh, I do take some supplements. Uh, kind of, you know, there's not a lot of, I don't know, there's not really any supplements that I take day in, day out. Um, I, in the colder part of the year, I take some cod liver oil. Uh, because it's a good source of vitamin D. The vitamin, the vitamin D is, you know, from endogenous synthesis, lower at that time, and it's well balanced with vitamin A and some other nutrients in the cod liver oil. So I'll usually do that. I don't take cod liver oil year round, though. Why, why not? Uh, well, 
honestly, it's possible that I'd be better off fire taking the cod liver oil year round. But the reason that I tend not to is because I get a lot of sunshine in the warmer parts of the year, so I figure that kind of uh, helps me balance out the vitamin D. I'll focus more on eating liver during those times to get my vitamin A. And I feel like the omega-3 fatty acids are good for you in small doses, but um, but I don't necessarily want to day in, day out be taking marine oils, especially if I'm also eating fatty fish and getting other sources of the omega-3s. Um, but I will say it, that's my ideal diet, and sometimes things just catch up with me. And I, you know, in theory, I uh, eat a lot of liver during the summer, but then, you know, whatever caught up with me. And I wasn't eating a lot of liver during the summer. And in that type of case, maybe it would, I would be better off if I had been taking the cod liver oil uh, then because the convenience barrier is a lot lower for taking cod liver oil, for sure. Um, and, yeah, I mean, reflecting on that, I actually this summer I had some pretty bad uh, health issues because my vitamin A status was kind of sinking. So I had some eye issues to deal with. And um, so actually I have been taking supplemental vitamin A right now because I had some issues with my circadian rhythm and also with my dryness in my eyes that even though I was eating uh, right, like I was eating carrots practically every day, I was eating probably a dozen egg yolks a week. I was eating uh, liver a couple times a month and I was eating, you know, a lot of vegetables and like, Every, no one would predict from my diet that I'd be deficient in vitamin A, but I had some pretty severe conjunctivitis-like episodes that turned out to be related to dryness in my eyes, and I was having a lot of trouble uh, regulating my circadian rhythm, and uh, I did some research and found out that I could be connected to vitamin A too, had my vitamin A status tested, and it was kind of uh, toward the bottom. What nutrient test did you use to check your vitamin oh, A status? Oh. Uh, yeah, serum retinol. So serum retinol, you know, it's not perfect, but in general, if your serum retinol is below the reference range, then you can be pretty confident that you need more of it. And to be honest, it's probably better to be in the middle of the reference range. So I, before I got it tested, I was actually making a concerted effort to boost my vitamin A status for a week. And then when I had the test done, it was right at the bottom of the reference range and probably been lower and below the reference range before that. So, um, I, so I, I took that as pretty, uh, reasonable evidence that not enough, but that running low on vitamin A was, was the underlying source of my problems and, um, and boosting my vitamin A status, uh, definitely, Seems to have helped with my dry eyes, but I've also stopped wearing contact lenses for a while, so it's, I don't have a good test of how much it's helped my eyes because the, the contact lenses really irritate them. But it, definitely, my issues with my circadian rhythm have been resolved. So I'm pretty sure that vitamin A status was the issue there. And if you look at my health history, I, I all signs indicate that I have an unusually high need for vitamin A. I'm not sure why that is. Part of it might be genetics in uh, downstream of metabolism vitamin A, but also I think my eye color is a very light blue. In the sun, my eyes kind of look like a turquoise color. And the lighter eye color you have, the more blue and ultraviolet light get into the eye. And the eye contains the highest concentration of vitamin A in the body, and vitamin A is irreversibly destroyed by blue and ultraviolet light. So I haven't seen this uh, demonstrated clearly in the scientific literature, but um, I have. I believe that part of my increased need for vitamin A compared to a lot of other people is because of my light eye color. And I think it's probably the case that people with blue and green eyes in general probably need more vitamin A than people with brown eyes. Yeah. How long have you worn contacts and, and glasses? I first got glasses when I was 17. And I didn't know that my vision was failing me, but I was straining my eyes a lot when I was driving and reading. They gave me the test and gave me this, you know, the test, the different lenses. And I was like, wow, I'm supposed to be able to see the detail of that electrical outlet in the other room. I had no idea. <laughs> and so I said, I said to the doctor, I said, uh, so 
I didn't need glasses before. Why do you think I need them now? Like, what causes that? And he said, oh, you're getting older. Do you make a concerted effort to take your glasses and contacts off and expose your retinas to uh, full-spectrum sunlight? Um, I've gone back and forth with that. Uh, right now, I'm not doing that. I am going outside to get full-spectrum sunlight. I take my glasses off when it's raining. Uh, but I, I haven't really been... Um, I haven't really been proactive about getting fully unprotected sunlight. Why do you ask? Do you feel a benefit from that? I'd, I'd heard some. So I, I was talking with uh, Jack Cruz, and um, and he he pointed to some interesting research in the interrelationship between full spectrum sunlight and the assimilation of nutrients in the body, and um, how he's seen a, a very clear correlation with a lot of patients. And um, when they started wearing contacts and glasses, and then within two to three years, health issues arising. And he attributes it to the filtering of specifically UVB that can occur with contacts and glasses. And he's very adamant about making, making an effort to remove glasses and contacts and get that full spectrum sunlight unadulterated. There's physical aspects to needing glasses, but there's also metabolic aspects to needing glasses. And to be honest, I don't think really anyone understands why people need glasses in enough detail to really sort those things out. Uh, excuse me, sunglasses are blocking the blue light that in part, or at least partly blocking the blue light that's very important in regulating your circadian rhythm. Uh, these things, I don't think they block the blue light. And so maybe they're blocking, they're probably blocking UVB. Yeah, that's probably true. But I don't know whether it's important that UVB gets in the eye. And may, it may be. But I do know that it's important that blue light gets in the eye for the sake of the circadian rhythm. Last question. I want to be respectful of your time. I appreciate you, you being so generous with it. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. What does the first 90 minutes of your day look like? Generally, that starts the evening before I go to sleep. At the end of my workday, I make a list of, the, of maybe three to five things that are critical to get done in the next day. And then I, and then maybe I'll put a few things that are time permitting. I'll get to them, and that kind of gets everything out of my head, so it's not in my head while I'm trying to sleep. And it also makes it so I wake up and I don't have to spend any time figuring out what I'm going to do. So I wake up, and the very first thing that I do is I open my blackout blinds and I let all the light in in the house. And I turn on all my lights in my house, which are pretty bright lights, the overhead lights. And that's to jumpstart the waking signal in my brain so it knows it's daylight out. And I think that and getting uh, good darkness and blue light avoidance at night are the, are the two main light-related things you can do to help regulate your circadian rhythm. In an ideal world, I'd probably just go right out and take a, a, a walk, but I don't do that. Instead, what I do is I eat breakfast and I take a shower and I get dressed and then I go outside and take a walk. It depends. I, so I, I do CrossFit uh, three times a week in the morning. And so on a CrossFit day, I weave my walking into my navigation. So I'll do CrossFit kind of first thing in the morning because I feel like that uh, is also consistent with supporting my circadian rhythm Definitely, if I, I've definitely found that if I do like kettlebell swings and box jumps and burpees at seven thirty at night, I won't fall asleep till four in the morning. <laughs> so, um, so I live I live in Brooklyn. So walking is an integral part of where how I get anywhere. Uh, if I'm going into my office or to teach classes, I'm walking to get there. If I'm going to the gym or I'm going out dancing or something like that, I might take the train, but I still have 15 minutes of walking on my trip. So I try to get at least an hour of sunshine a day, and I try to bias at least a half hour towards the beginning of the day. So if I'm going somewhere, like to the gym, or to the box, I will uh, maybe go outside for 15, you know, take a walk for 15 minutes and then head out there and I get my half hour in. Today I, I was preparing for a lot of work at home stuff, so the first thing I did after I ate breakfast uh, was go out and take a half hour walk and that's just to sort of maximally get the sunlight into my head and turn on that daytime mechanism. It helps me be alert for the work that I'm about to do. 
And it also helps my body really tell the difference between night and day when it comes nighttime. So it's dark and I, I know what that means and I get tired and I fall asleep. Um, so that right there takes up the first 90 minutes of my day. And then it's on to whatever the critical tasks at hand are. Um, that might be designing a lesson. It might be writing an article. It might be... Um, going to a meeting, it might be, uh, could be any variety of things, but um, that 90 minutes really sort of uh, warms me up to the point where I can just come to my list and then start chipping, chipping away at it. Awesome, awesome. What was breakfast today? Uh, breakfast today was, what was breakfast today? It was uh, some deli meat, an apple, um, a cube of raw ginger, and a... Uh, a fer- uh, lacto-fermented dill pickle. Did you, how did you just throw down the, the ginger? Just, you chew up a can of ginger? Yeah, that's a digestion, a digestion hack that I have. Really? All my life, my digestion has, has not been that great. And I find that the simplest thing that I can do is at every meal, eat the amount of ginger that I wish I hadn't eaten. So, uh, so, so what that means is there's different varieties of ginger that might be available in different stores that have different amounts of the pungent uh, chemicals in them. And what I find is if I, if I eat some of the lighter variety and, um, then and I'm like, oh, that wasn't so bad. That means that it didn't really do much for my digestion. So I'll eat like a, a huge chunk of that stuff where if it's the strong stuff, I'll eat like an inch cube. I just slice it up, uh, chew it, and down some water. Awesome. Hey, have you played around with uh, baking it's like, like a dollar for a piece of ginger. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very inexpensive. Um, that's, that's a great hack because so many people have digestive issues. Have you, have you wondered if you have hypochloridia or low stomach acid production or anything like that? Have you explored those options? possibilities <laughs> yeah yeah i have and i i mean the only way to really know is to have that uh, radioactive pill that you swallow that detects your stomach acid yeah, so i did in. spend uh a lot of money and time taking uh beating hydrochloride supplements like six capsules a meal for like a year and a half and i think it did me some good at that time but then there came a point where I started getting uh, reflux or some kind of um, acidic reaction from that. I felt like I had to titrate my dose down. And then I got rid of it and had pretty good digestion. Uh, in the case now, I trace all the recent digestive problems that I've had over the last year or so to a period of really overwhelming work stress and sleep deprivation at the end of 2014. And what I found is that um, the things that you need to do to make the problems go away is sometimes more than the things you would have had to do to not have them in the first place. So I've really fixed my sleep and lifestyle and stuff like that. And um, actually, I've always had a little bit of eczema that creeps up when I have digestive issues. And I had a little bit of eczema on my hand. And fixing everything that I know that relates to my eczema, it wasn't going away. And I finally found that what I needed to do is avoid any unnecessary contact with soap because it washes away the liquid and the skin, uh, the lipids in the skin. So, for example, if I'm washing dishes, I'll wear gloves. Um, it, uh, you know, obviously, I have to wash my hands at some time, but every time I do wash my hands, I put some shea butter on it, which replaces the, uh, the lipids that the soap washed away. And it's in a matter of a few days, it's almost disappeared. And so I was, I had so much knowledge about all the internal things in my body that caused eczema to come and go away. And I was neglecting like basic topical things. And the fact is that once the eczema is there, there's all kinds of things in your daily life that irritated and aggravated and you have to address those things. So same thing with the ginger. Um, you know, I could, I could probably at now I'm at the point where, you know, if I, if I go away on a trip or I, you know, or if I'm socializing a lot, I, you know, I won't, 
I don't need to do the ginger thing. I just do it when I'm at home and I, I don't have any problems. But I feel like it's so cheap and it's been so beneficial to me that it's better to just keep eating the ginger for now. It's just such a simple thing that I'd rather be operating at my peak than worrying about, you know, whether I might slip back from my peak. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's and there's so many other health benefits with ginger. And, and you know, I just I just got back from San Francisco at um, a paleo and evolutionary medicine conference at UCSF Medical School and the organizer uh, Dr. Akil uh, Polynesimi, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He's, uh, I believe he's of uh, Indian background, so he's very into Ayurvedic medicine. And he has a book that's, um, the keyword is Paleovedic. So, uh, so I, I watched his presentation and he combined, you know, blood chemistry analysis and all this modern stuff with traditional Ayurvedic doshas and, uh, you know, the, the balance between the vata or air type and the kapha or the earth slow moving type and pitta, the digestive fire. And I could so see, you know, all my personality traits and balance there. And from, I think from an Ayurvedic perspective, I've just, when I get out of balance, I'm all about the vata and I'm, and I'm really lacking the pitta. And so uh, so just adding some digestive fire is, uh, something that balances me, balances out my constitutions. Ah, very cool. Chris, I've had a lot of fun. You are an encyclopedic hey. knowledge of nutritional information and, um, and, and I've, I've had a blast. So I thank you for your time. You've been very generous. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate and, it. And, um, I think people are going to absolutely love this and, and maybe in the future we can do a, uh, part two. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Take care. This episode is brought to you by the Violite. So many of the health experts and world-class athletes I've interviewed over the years have revealed one of their secret weapons to improve performance is photobiomodulation and specifically light therapy. And the Violite is one of the best photobiomodulation device companies on the market. I'm a big fan of their product, the Neuro, which is a transcranial intranasal headset that gives efficient and effective whole brain stimulation. Its design utilizes photonic energy to stimulate cellular function in neurons and help improve brain bioenergetics. I'm also a big fan of the 655, which is a 655 nanometer red intranasal light therapy device that helps stimulate your body to move towards an ideal internal environment. It lowers inflammation. It kills pathogens in the blood. This low-level laser diode, it releases coherent light in the visible red spectrum and it irradiates the capillary-rich nasal cavity. I've found all three products to have a huge impact on maximizing my performance and you can check them out at violite.com. That's V-I-E L-I-G-H-T.com. And for a special bonus to you guys, Violet is offering 10% off of your purchase. So all you have to do is use the discount code BIOHACKS, that's B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S, at checkout, and you will save 10% on your order. So check out the Violet product line. You will not be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by drpaulik.com, your go-to resource for pulsed electromagnetic field information and therapy devices. I personally use a number of Dr. Pollock's products, including the PEMF120 and the FlexPulse. The PEMF120 has been shown to accelerate recovery, improve performance, reduce swelling. It produces intensities between 1,000 and 15,000 Gauss, which stimulate all levels of the body, affecting the individual cells that make up tissues, organs, and complete body systems. It is not a portable device, but it's incredibly powerful, and it's a non-invasive solution for pulsed electromagnetic field therapy. If you're in the market for something with a little bit lower intensity, something that's more portable, then I recommend the Flex Pulse. It produces similar results and, and similar pulsed electromagnetic fields, but at a much smaller intensity, and some people believe at an intensity that is more biocompatible. 
The system has six preset programs with varying frequencies to leverage the power of electromagnetic energy to treat a host of conditions and to optimize physical and mental performance. Dr. Pollock's products have been leveraged to treat everything from Alzheimer's, lumbar disc disease, depression, anxiety, Lyme's disease, multiple sclerosis, osteoarthritis, spinal cord injuries, seizures, epilepsy, sleep disorders, sports injury recovery, and much, much more. I recommend pulsed electromagnetic field therapy to many of my clients and listeners, and drpollock.com has some of the best products on the market. You can check out the PEMF120 and the Flex Pulse and the rest of Dr. Pollock's products at www.drpollock.com. That's drpollock.com, www.drpollock.com.